Matthew 14, we'll read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll come back and look at it verse by verse. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to them, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Uh, not the most comforting portion of scripture. For the children's ministry workers, this is not one you necessarily want on the flannel board and I want to be moving around the different pieces. It's a difficult portion of scripture to go through, a difficult reality. First, we see Herod, the first character we're given in verse 1. And Herod is one of the most powerful men in this area. He's basically the governor in the surrounding area of the Sea of Galilee. And yet, one of the most powerful men in the area is living in fear and in paranoia because of a guilty conscience. I don't know if you've ever had a guilty conscience. And anytime your mind is quiet, that guilty conscience begins to plague you. Uh, that regret, those difficulties, those dumb choices, you think, how could I have done something so stupid? And Herod was a very wicked man who was born from an equally wicked man. All of them were descendants of Esau. They were Edomites. And his father, Herod the Great, was the same man who put to death all of the two-year-old and younger children near Bethlehem. He put to death hundreds, if not thousands, of little boys to death because of fear and of paranoia. Herod the Great had nine different wives, and it was said of Herod the Great, it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household rather than one of his wives or one of his sons. Because he lived in so much paranoia, he thought his kids and his wives were constantly after his throne and after his power. Trying to personify that he was a Jewish man, an Edomite, he would try to hold on to some of the Jewish laws so he wouldn't eat pork. Hence the saying, safer to be a pig in Herod's house than his own wife or own son. The Herod we're looking at here is Herod Antipas. And he's one of the four surviving sons of Herod the Great. His title, Tetrarch, means that he ruled a fourth part of the kingdom. Herod here is much more like a governor or a mayor than he is a king or Roman power. 
And as we saw within the last couple of years, government and people within government, the power can get to their head. You had people on school boards or mayors or governors and all of a sudden they're saying, hear ye, hear ye, right? And they're giving law and order. You can't celebrate Christmas. You can't celebrate Thanksgiving and different things like that. But here we see the wickedness of Herod Antipas. Once visiting his half-brother Philip, he fell in love with his brother's wife, even though he was already married. Her name was Herodias, and Philip and Herodias made this plan, divorced their spouses, and then went on to get married to one another. We see here that there's nothing new under the sun. This weird sexual perversion amongst powerful people, amongst the rich, amongst the famous, amongst politicians is nothing new. Today it's all over the news, the different lists of names, the different flight logs, the different islands. These sexual perversion amongst powerful people is nothing new. However, here John the Baptist was noted for calling out this sinful couple over and over and over again. And how would you and I react? You're invited to the governor's house. You're invited to the president's house. Would you be honest? Would you be real? Would you uphold scripture and the truth and love of the gospel? Or would you allow the fear of man to be a snare in your life? But now the guilt of Herod is making him go mad. He's being paranoid because he's already put John the Baptist to death, and yet seeing Jesus and his ministry, he thinks John the Baptist has resurrected from the dead and is here to judge him. The, the blessing of being able to live with a good conscience. In verse 2, he says, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Numbers 32, verse 23 tells us to be sure because your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out no matter how powerful you are, no matter the great storyteller you are, or how good of a liar you are. Your sin will find you out. And all over the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Timothy speak about being able to live with a good conscience. Do you have a good and a clear conscience here this morning? Or are you concerned with people finding out the reality of your life? Are you living a double life? Are you one person at church and yet your cell phone history says you're somebody completely different? Your call log history says one thing and your church attendance says something else. We can live double lives. It's been said the best sleeping pill is a clear conscience. Being able to go to bed and just knock out because you're not afraid of anybody finding out who you truly are. And the only way we can truly have this clear conscience is by having our faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, there are many believers that whether it sins after we've come to Christ or sins before we've come to Christ. Many believers that have had abortions or divorces. Sins that we're not proud of. Sins that plague us mentally. But if we come to Christ, He promises to wash us and make us white as snow. If we put our faith in Him, our trust in Him, He promises to separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He will take our sin and throw it into the sea of forgiveness. 
Are you able to give your full testimony without any fear because you have that clear conscience? In verse 3 and 4, we're given flashbacks to the events that led up to this paranoia within Herod. Verse 3 and 4 says that Herod laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. The tense here in the Greek is that John said this to both Herod and to Herodias over and over and over again. And here there's no social media to hide behind. There's no cyber bullying or being an e-thug or anything like that. He would say it to their faces in front of many people. And there's a saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I don't know if a husband wrote that or who wrote that, but hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Herod isn't making his decisions based on what's right and wrong. He's not making decisions even based on his conscience. He's not making decisions on what's biblical or unbiblical. Herod is making his decisions based upon what Herodias wants and desires. And there are many similarities to Ahab, Jezebel, and the prophet Elijah with Herod, Herodias, and John the Baptist. Ahab wasn't really that bad of a guy. But you get a guy that doesn't have a backbone, that doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. He marries a pagan woman and she drags him down and down and down. And it's the same thing here with Herod. He's just doing whatever first Herodias wants, then whatever the crowds want, then whatever the people around him at the party want. In verse 5, he comes around and now he wants to put him to death. But it tells us he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And friend, to make our decisions based on fear, based on guilt, or based on shame is a way to make decisions that you will regret. If we're making our decisions based on fear and guilt and shame, it will overpower us and cause us to make bad decisions. And I think it's so interesting how John the Baptist, the man who's in shackles, the man who's in prison, the man who has his life on the line, was freer and had less to fear than the man with all the power and all the might, the very man that put John the Baptist into prison. You see, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus tells us, He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Perhaps you've come to church here this morning and you're just exhausted. You're at your wit's end. I encourage you, let go of your life. Entrust it to Christ. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, what are the decisions you want me to make? When we lose our life in Christ, we finally will find it. But if we're trying to control our life and do all that we want to do and all that we think to be right and all we think to be best for us, we will lose our lives. In Matthew 11, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And we see John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, was not offended because of Jesus Christ or the words of Christ. 
where we are, most of us, American believers. I don't know if there's any international guests here this morning. Are we offended at Christ? At the workplace? With our family? At Thanksgiving? At Christmas? With our own kids? With our own spouses? Are we offended with Jesus Christ and the reality of Scripture? Because we have brothers and sisters all over this world that are not offended because of Christ and their life is on the line. They're being put to death. They're seeing family members put to death because they are not offended because of Christ. We see John the Baptist was no different. In verse 6 through 8, it tells us when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, this is his stepdaughter, right? Danced before them, and it pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. The other gospels say that she, he promised her up to half of the kingdom. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. I don't know how difficult your family is or how rough your thanksgivings are, but this family's jacked up. It's all sorts of messed up. First, we see Herod pleased with his half-daughter or stepdaughter dancing in front of him. Then we see that his new wife, who divorced his own brother to marry him, right away tells her little girl to ask for a man to be beheaded and for a dead body, a dead head, to be given to her. Again, this is just so mess. It's just so much sin here. And perhaps you were raised in a family and you had that stepdad that abused you or a family member that abused you. May we learn from those situations and I'll provide the safest and the healthiest and the holiest home we can provide to our children. We see here she grew up in this wretched home. Verse 11 tells us that she's just a little girl and she's impressing this man with her dance moves. Now let's be honest here. It wasn't the cha-cha slide. She wasn't tap dancing. wasn't a river dance. It probably wasn't even the Macarena, right? This was some type of seductive, suggestive, and immoral dance that had all these drunk and powerful men amazed at her and salivating at her. And what kind of a mom sends her daughter out into this type of atmosphere? Parents, do we know what our kids are watching on their phones, on their devices, on the internet? We are sending them out to the wolves and then some if you're letting it all go unnoticed, just trusting their good conscience. Sadly, many parents are not trying to do what's most holy for their kids. They're just trying to do what's most convenient and easy for themselves. Charles Spurgeon says, In these days, mothers too often encourage their daughters to dress in what is scarcely decent and introduce them to dances which are not commendable for purity. No good can come of this. It may please the Herods, but it displeases God. Parents, are we the greatest tool and help in our kids' holiness and relationship with the Lord? Or are we the greatest stumbling block, the bane of their existence, a thorn in their side when it comes to their walk and relationship with Jesus Christ? You may think it's so cute to dress them in a certain worldly way, but what will that do for her character, for her self-worth, for how she gets her worth 
from other men and other people's eyes. Oftentimes with our kids, are we making our decisions based on their eternity and based on their character? We live in Miami. There's a lot of Hispanics here. We love to idolize our sons and daughters. We also love to live vicariously through them. You drive by the different parks and there's tons of kids everywhere. Then parents living vicariously through their sons and daughters. Parents, the different sports, the different activities, the different hobbies we send our kids to and pay for. Are we considering their character? Are we considering their character? Is my kid's character going to be better or worse after putting them with this other group of pagan children? Are they going to be better for it or are they going to be worse? May we make our decisions in prayer, sending our kids to be lights in this world, making sure we're giving them the ammunition to be ready for the devices of the enemy and the peer pressure out there. Verse 9 through 11, we see the king was sorry. He had regret. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Damien Kyle mentions four things that lead to making decisions that you will regret. I don't think anybody likes making decisions that they're going to regret. I know that's one thing that always plagues my mind. I want to live a life without any regrets. But he lists four things that will lead to making decisions that you will regret. Number one, drunkenness. Number two, lust. Number three, peer pressure. And number four, the inability to admit that you are wrong. Drunkenness, lust, peer pressure, and the inability to admit that you are wrong. Drunkenness. There's no doubt that there was alcohol involved at this party. Many Roman leaders, many people that were wealthy within Roman culture would have wine and all sorts of alcohol involved at any type of party, much less a Roman governor at his only birthday party. And let's be honest, do people's decision-making get better or worse when alcohol is involved? Does anyone say, thank God I was a little bit drunk when I made that decision? (laughs) When I made that purchase, thank God I was drunk. Never. It's always a bad, our decision making gets worse and worse and worse depending on how much alcohol is involved in it. And to me, it boggles my mind today because there are many unbelievers that are saying zero alcohol. I don't know if you've noticed that recently. Many of the so-called influencers, many podcasters are saying no alcohol. Even one cup a week is going to affect you in a not good way. And yet it seems like more than ever before, it's the Christians that are voicing their freedom in Christ and a right to be able to drink. And I think it's all dependent with how important of a role do you think you play within the kingdom of God. Because Proverbs 31, verse 4 and 5, it doesn't say believers, doesn't say unbelievers. It says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. How important of a role do you think you play within the kingdom of heaven? 
I think it's going to dictate how important taking drugs or drinking wine or getting a little bit of a buzz is for you. But if unbelievers are willing to say, hey, we should take no part in this. I'm not so weak that I need alcohol to get rid of my stress or to be able to dance or to be able to have a good time. How much we being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I have to be honest with you. There's no rule or sin biblically that says drinking alcohol, period, is a sin. There's nothing like that. As Paul would say, all things are permissible. It's all, it's all permissible. It's all allowed. But are all things beneficial? Is this going to be a blessing to me? The second one was lust. Again, to consider the provocative dance of his stepdaughter pleased this man to the point where he promised her half of the kingdom. Now, was that even his to give? Not at all. Rome would like to have a word with him because that's not in his power to give. But because he's drunk on lust and on alcohol, he's making a decision that he will later on regret. And sadly, many men and many women make decisions based on lust and live with regrets for months and years and decades to come. Sadly, it seems like every week, we hear of another pastor, another father, another man that lived life, made decisions based on lust, and now he broke his wife, he broke his kids, he broke his home, he broke a church. We see it on a weekly basis. And if you struggle with lust, if you're dealing with any type of lust, but especially sexual lust, I encourage you to read through Proverbs 7 as often as you can. Because Proverbs 7, verse 23, it tells us, He did not know it would cost his life. He didn't know it would cost him his life. Verse 26 and 27 says, For she, this is lust personified, For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. And there have been many pastors more gifted than me, stronger than me, holier than me, that have been destroyed because of lust. Let's cut that, put that down as soon as possible. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, To put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Show no mercy. And young man, if you think once you're married that this will go away, you're in for a world of hurt. The enemy will allow it to get dormant until there's more of a price to be paid. So that now, not only does he affect your life, but he affects your life, your wife's life, and the life of your children. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says to flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, he commits sexual immorality. He sins against his own body. Flee sexual immorality, even if you literally have to run for your life. What did Joseph do when he was tempted with sexual immorality? He ran for his life. So fast he left his clothes behind. That's how fast he ran for his life. With this, I always think of Pastor Bobby Hargraves. He was here a little while ago. And when he came to the Lord, he had a past that was filled with lust and sex and the party scene. So he was doing his best to stay holy. 
He wanted to stay holy, so he made a pact with other single men, and they called themselves Bachelors to the Rapture. And that was the name of their group. They found accountability in one another. And what he would do to practically stay away from sexual immorality is that he started becoming a long-distance runner. He said it'd be better for him to get home and be so exhausted that he eats and passes out till the next morning than to be tempted with sexual immorality. It's far better to start running and just burn through all your shoes than to burn in lust and fall prey to sin. Because Romans tells us the wages of sin is, it's death and always death. There's no way to get around that. It is death and always death. The third thing to stay clear of if you don't want to make decisions that you will regret, it is peer pressure. And sometimes we think only kids, right? Only the middle schoolers and the high schoolers here deal with peer pressure. But every single adult deals with peer pressure. Herod wanted to, number one, please his wife, which was in sin. And then he wanted to look cool in front of his friends. He didn't want to look weak after putting a promise out. And now this little girl saying, okay, I want Herod's head. He didn't want to look weak. So instead of listening to his conscience, he just doubles down on his sin. One commentator says, like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. Like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. And I think it's interesting, different cultures, things that we deem as manly and unmanly. I think some of them, no doubt, is biblical. But there are a lot of things that it is just a man that is so afraid for other people to think that he's weak. Some men think it's unmanly to do dishes or to clean the house. It's unmanly to braid his own daughter's hair. Yet where do we get these things biblically? We know that Jesus, he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples. What, is that below us today? That's not manly. There's no manlier man than Christ. Are we so afraid of what people think that it becomes that snare? Proverbs 29 verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Let's live for the audience of one because 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. There are many adults here that we're driving cars we can't afford because we're trying to impress people that don't love us or care about us. We drive around in Miami. I don't know if I'm the only one. I drive around like, that's an $80,000 car. That's a $100,000 car. How do people afford this? That's a $100,000 car with 20 grand in rims and suspension and paint. How do people afford this? And it is people trying to impress others with money they don't have. Be careful with the peers around you and the peer pressure they're putting on you. And finally, number four is the inability to admit that you are wrong. You see, Herod made a dumb promise. And the only thing worse than making a dumb promise is to be too prideful to admit that was a dumb promise. Forgive me, I'm not doing that. Charles Spurgeon says rash promises and even oaths are no excuse for doing wrong. The promise was in itself null and void because no man has a right to promise to do wrong. Yet so often we know we're wrong and we're having that conversation in our head. And instead of just saying, I am sorry, I was wrong, it's my fault, I did it. 
you say, nah, I can't do that. I got to just double down and just run right through it. Whenever this comes up, I always think of a kid's movie. And the character says, he just has difficulty saying that he's sorry. So he says, okay, I'll admit it. You were right. I was less right. <laughs> and sadly, there's a lot of men, a lot of marriages like that, that it is their Achilles heel to be able to say, Man, I'm sorry. I totally blew it. It's my fault. Proverbs 16, 18 warns us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, verse 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Those people that you're afraid to look like as weak and admitting that you're wrong are the very people that will respect you more because you're willing to admit that you're wrong. More often than not, especially if it's your own kids, if it's your own spouse, that fear of, man, they're going to think I don't have it all together. Guess what? They already know you don't got it all together. They already know that. Just got to admit that. Honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Kids, I'm sorry. I blew up. I got in the flesh. Would you guys forgive me? Man, do what is right. You'll gain and earn more of their respect. And now if someone has apologized to you, be biblical. And with the same measure of forgiveness that Christ has given you, that's what we're to give others. Don't say, okay, I forgive you, but now you got to buy me a ring. Now you got to buy me that Range Rover. Now you got to do this. And biblical forgiveness doesn't work that way. Now there's no doubt you got to wait for fruit worthy of repentance, but we should forgive in the same way we've been forgiven. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, I forgive you, but now do X, Y, or Z. doesn't work that way. And just the blessing of being able to go to bed with a clear conscience. So may we not make our decisions with drunkenness or lust or peer pressure or the inability to admit that we're wrong. May we make our decisions based upon the word of God, a humility and a leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And oh, what freedom we have that when we make mistakes, and we will, that we can cry out to the Lord and ask him to forgive us. And he's quick to forgive. The joy we have to be able to go to bed with a clear conscience. Asking Jesus to forgive us. Asking people to forgive us. The people that we've wronged. And then living a life that is obedient to his word. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And went and told Jesus. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we say, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I'm living righteously. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And it seems like every sinful pagan person is the one getting all of the money and the houses and the cars and the jobs. Trust in the Lord. David Guzik says, Herod had a terrible end. In order to take his brother's wife Herodias, he put away and divorced his first wife, who was a princess from the neighboring kingdom to the east. Her father was offended and came against Herod with his army and defeated him in battle. Then his brother Agrippa accused him of treason against Rome and he was banished into the distant Roman province of Gaul. And in Gaul, both Herod and Herodias committed suicide. Again, allow the Lord. He is the greatest avenger and defender. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Take that step back. Be able to pray for your enemies. Maybe at first you're praying like, David, Lord, I pray you'd break their teeth in, right? 
But hopefully you can come to the New Testament side of that where you're saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That we would be able to learn to love our enemies. I love verse 12 so much because it says the disciples came and took away the body. They didn't come and take away John. John was no longer there. It was only his body that remained. John the Baptist, he's not there. He's now in heaven. He's in his glorified body, his perfect body with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with God the Father himself. Charles Spurgeon says, It is not said by the evangelists that they buried John, but that they took up his body and buried it. It wasn't him, the real John no man could bury. And Herod soon found that being dead, he yet spoke. His conscience was still plagued by the words of John the Baptist. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Believers, we should know this. We should have confidence in this. In this season where my mom's passed away, I hold on to this with so much joy. You see, no believer should go to an open casket funeral and look in there and say, they look so peaceful. No believer should ever say that because they are not there. That's just an exoskeleton. They're not there. They're in heaven rejoicing. And guess what? They're not looking down here. They're not. There's far greater things to be looking at than down here and all the chaos that's happening. They are in heaven, not with just a goal body, not with just a 33-year-old body, not just their peak form body, but a new body that we cannot even comprehend. May we know the reality of heaven and hell and life and death and walk in that with confidence and boldness. So perhaps this is the meal you would like to be with. All the who's who, all the famous people, all the rich, the famous, the powerful. There's dinner and the show, even if you would. There's many people going around. There's even family drama. You could eat popcorn in the corner and see what's happening. Is this the dinner that you want to be a part of? Or we'll see in this next section, would you rather be a part of a picnic with 15,000 people and one Lunchables? Which dinner do you want to be a part of? Verse 13, we'll read verse 13 through 21. It says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides 
women, and children. Now, there are many miracles which Jesus accomplished during his earthly ministry, but there's only one miracle that is found in every single gospel, and it's this feeding of the 5,000. For whatever reason, God wanted us to know this miracle. He wants this to come to our attention. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 32, Mark gives us a couple more details that are very important. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 32, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. We see here Jesus and all of his disciples in desperate need of rest. And oftentimes within the Gospels, we see Jesus pulling away from the crowds, even disappearing on his own disciples to get some alone time with the Father. And it's important for us, this alone time, this deserted place, is not to be mindless, just to fill our mind with something else to hide our problems and our current situation. To go out to a deserted place with Jesus alone is to sit outside in nature and meditate on God and his goodness. This is true rest. Vance Havner, he says, if you do not come apart, you will come apart. I'll put it this way, if you didn't get it, he says, if you don't come apart, you will fall apart. And it's so important for us when life is exhausting, when life is tired, to get away with Jesus and spend time with him. You see, we have so many, so many lies going on. We have a difficult day, a difficult season. You say, you know what? I'm going to get alone with Ben and Jerry, and then I'm going to feel better afterwards. I'm going to get alone with this ice cream. I'm going to get alone with this bucket of fried chicken. I'm going to get alone with Lucky Charms, and then I'm going to feel better. And do we ever feel better afterwards? No, we feel even worse. Oh, you fatty, why did you do this? On top of everything that's going on, now you're doing this, and i got to go run a mile. To, we, it only makes us feel worse. Sometimes we think, I had a long day, I'm just going to binge, just veg out, watch some TV, and then I'll feel better afterwards. Do we feel better afterwards? No, all we're doing is we're amusement. We're blocking our mind from being able to really think about what's going on or consider God and his goodness and his faithfulness. And we're just trying to get away from the problems. You see, the important thing is to shut down all the noise and get alone with Jesus. You see, the disciples were tired and weary. This all happens right as they're coming back from their mission trip of going two by two trying to reach the lost of Israel. It tells us that they were so busy with ministry, they barely had enough time to eat. This happens right when Jesus' own cousin is killed, murdered, and beheaded. And Christ was human. He just wanted a little time to grieve and process. And the importance for us, all the retreats the church puts together, we're not making money on it. It's not to build a building or buy food. Those retreats is so that you can get away with Jesus. So you can get away where the schedule's set for you, things are easy and ready to spend time alone with the Lord. 
And yet what happens? The multitudes were diligent to see the boat of Jesus and they're following the boat. You could see, you could imagine Jesus is on the boat and you see the cloud of dust following on the seashore, trying to keep up with the boat. And does this lead to Jesus losing his cool? Does this lead to Jesus being frustrated? Does he tell Peter, hey, Peter, go that way. The crowd's going this way. Hey, Peter, put the anchor down. Let's wait for nightfall and then we'll go to the other side. I'm sorry. I'm tired. We're closed. Let's be honest. What would we be moved with? We're tired, we're weary, someone we love has not only died, but has been murdered. I'll be honest, we'd probably, I would be moved with agitation, moved with frustration, moved with a meltdown. We would lose our cool. The, the day and age of technology, it's so funny. I've seen pastors forget that the live stream's running during the time of greeting one another, and they say some very interesting things to the servants. Not as necessarily moved with compassion, but with agitation. Was Jesus moved with depression? Was he just so tired? Ugh, I can't do this. I'm just going to ball in, in the fetal position at the bottom of the boat and just wait here. Was he moved with frustration, beating up the disciples, throwing them overboard? No, instead, as an example to all of us. Though he was weary, though he was tired, though he was exhausted... What does it tell us when he sees the multitude? He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion for them. And it's not just a moving with compassion and then doing nothing about it. No, he's moved with compassion and then it tells us he healed their sick. And he heals their sick for how long? Until it was evening. This word compassion is to experience a deep visceral feeling for someone. To have compassion and sympathy and pity for someone. Compassion is the sympathetic consciousness of someone else's distress together with a desire to alleviate it. This verb expresses an outward flow of one's life in contrast to our natural tendency towards self-centeredness. You see, oftentimes we feel bad... And that's it. We just move on to the next thing. We feel bad. We have compassion. But hey, I got, I got all these things I got to do today. Jesus was moved with compassion and did something about it. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Mark's account tells us that he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. How do we see the multitudes? How do we see people in the way of our rest do we see them as an, an annoyance, a frustration, or do we see them as sheep not having a shepherd? William Barclay, he mentions three things about sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd cannot find the way. Left to ourselves, we will get lost in this life. Sheep without a shepherd cannot find its pasture and cannot find its food. And finally, sheep without a shepherd have no defense against the dangers which threaten it. And how many of us have been there? We lived a life without a shepherd in the past. And we went after all of these different lifestyles. We tried to feed on lust. We tried to feed on money. We tried to feed on power. And yet none of it sustained us. None of it helped us feel better. We had no shepherd and we were easy pickings for the enemy who's seeking to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
How many of us, we went the wrong way and we got completely lost, completely broken, and completely left all alone. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the good shepherd. And here we see Jesus living out 1 John 3, 17. It says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, the next time we're driving and you see a brother, a sister pulled over trying to change their tire. Say, hey, isn't that so-and-so from church? Yeah, I guess they got a bad tire. Let's pray for them. Lord, we thank you and you just keep going. <laughs> That's not right. Or you're walking out of church and brothers, you see another brother weeping and broken. Sisters, you see another sister weeping and broken. Oh man, now they're crying. Let me pray for them. Lord, just pray and you just go along your way. No, if we have the ability to help, we should help. We should be helping even more so our own brothers and sisters. And this is in the midst of being in pain and agony and exhaustion. Jesus goes out and now he ministers to the multitudes for hours and hours. Then in verse 15, it's always so funny and ironic when the disciples tell Jesus what's going on and how to fix it. I'm sure none of us in our prayer life are telling Jesus what's going on and how to fix it. The irony of it all. May our prayer life change and grow. Not, hey, hey Lord, I don't know if you realize or you notice, right? American politics are kind of jacked up. I don't know if you realize this or not. This is exactly what you need to do to fix this situation. And many other ways. We see the disciples, they tell him, Jesus, I don't know if you realize this is a deserted place. Jesus is the one that told the disciples, let's go to a deserted place. <laughs> then he tells them, Lord, I don't know if you realize it, but it's getting late. The hour is late. I think he knows all these things. And he says, he, they tell him, they realize the problem, and they give Jesus the solution. Hey, Lord, the solution here is send the multitudes away. Let them go into the villages and buy their own food. It's so ironic that the disciples tell Jesus what's going on and how to fix it. Now, there's no doubt there's a problem here, but Jesus has a far different fix for this issue. It seems as if the disciples don't see them as sheep without a shepherd, but they see them as a problem, a frustration, and an annoyance between them and their relaxation. Between them and their rest. So important for us when we are tired and exhausted and yet family needs us, ministry needs us, a spouse needs us, our kids need us. It's not okay to just blow up in frustration. It's time to take a step back, press into the Lord, and now come back with whatever little we have. Because in verse 16, Jesus tells them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And here Jesus is asking them to do something that is impossible. Lord, we, we can't feed them. We read already that there's 5,000 men. Most scholars believe there's somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 people when you consider the men, the children, and the women. And here David Guzik says Jesus is challenging both the compassion and the faith of the disciples. Jesus tells them, hey, you 
are the ones that need to go out and feed them. And oftentimes Jesus will ask us to do impossible things so that we can press into him all the more. When Jesus asks us to love our enemies, is that easy and possible for you? Because it's not easy for me. That's how we live, right? Fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. That's it. It's over. It's done with. But yet scripturally, what does he ask me to do? To love my enemies. That's impossible for me. But if I take a step back and press into the Lord, he can help me do it. The, the Lord asks us to, for all the husbands here, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Is that easy for you gentlemen here? You guys can come pray for me after service, right? Because that's not easy. But you press into the Lord and he helps you to do it. For the ladies here, to respect your husband as a church is to respect and honor and follow Christ. Is that easy for some of you ladies here? No, man, I got the dumbest guy out there, Zach. You got to pray for me. Hey, press into the Lord. He's asking you to do something impossible. But with him, all things are possible. God does so many miracles in our lives. He provides for us. We thank him. We worship him. And then a week goes by and a month goes by. And what happens? We completely forget about it. We're freaking out. We're scared again. Telling God, hey, this is what's happening and this is how you need to fix it. What was Jesus' first miracle within his ministry? Changing water into wine. And how much? One cup, one thimble. No, enough for an entire wedding feast. Jesus is more than able to do this. Out in the desert, in the wilderness, with two million people, he had manna rain down from heaven. He had quail land and be easy pickings for the people to eat. He had Moses hit a rock or speak to a rock, and water came out of it. And yet the disciples are here saying, Lord, you need to send them away. We need to trust in the Lord. Be reminded of his goodness, his faithfulness in the past. John chapter 6 verse 9 gives us some more information. It tells us that the way the disciples got the five loaves and the two fish was from a child. It says in John chapter 6 verse 9, there is a lad here with five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? There was one mom who packed her kids lunch and was able to feed 10,000 people, right? And here, Scripture gives us details. Five barley loaves. This wasn't five Cuban loaves. This wasn't five huge loaves of bread. It's basically like five crackers. Five dinner rolls is what the kid had. And two small fish. This wasn't a yellowfin tuna. This wasn't a huge salmon. No. Two small fish. This was his Lunchables. This is what this was. Five dinner rolls, two small fish. They were probably smoked. He'd probably shred the meat up and it was almost like a smoked fish dip. It was this kid's lunchbox. This is all that they had. But what does the Lord tell us? Whatever little you have, bring it to me. Whatever little you have, surrender it to Christ and bring it without any expectation. Many times we look at the little we have and in our pride we just say, No, Lord, I don't have enough so I won't come to you. I won't have enough so I won't serve you. Lord, I don't have enough so I'm not going to do these things for you. Whatever little we have, bring it to Christ. Surrender it to him and allow him to do whatever he wants to do with it. The Lord asked Moses to help free an entire nation. What did Moses bring to the party? A staff. 
David, he's asked, he wants to deliver Israel from Goliath. What did David bring? Five rocks and a sling. Gideon brought 300 men. The disciples brought five bread rolls and two sardines. The widow brought two mites. And yet God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask, think, or imagine. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it says, But this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now it's not in comparison of you next to you next to you. No, it's in comparison of what can we give. We see the widow, she gave out of her necessity. And the Lord says she's giving more than anybody else here. If in our pride we say, Lord, this isn't enough, I'm not going to surrender it to you, then you are going to reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 19, and we got to think, how much were the disciples freaking out here? They got this one Lunchables, Jesus is there with the 12 disciples, and they got this kid's Paw Patrol lunchbox, right? And they're looking at five bread rolls and two fish. And Jesus says, okay, just have them all sit down. Have the 10,000 people get ready here. And what were the disciples thinking? If Jesus just wanted to hand out taste testers, he could say, hey, everybody get in a single file line, and here's your little cup of fish and your little cup of bread, and just move the line down. No, 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 friend. He asked them to sit down in, in order to be ready for a banquet, to be ready for a meal. He takes the little lunchbox, looks up into heaven, and he blessed it. He thanked God for the little that he provided. When we thank God for the food he provides, we're following the example of Christ. Then he broke it. He breaks the loaves and he breaks the fish and he hands it to the disciples. And then the disciples handed it out to the multitudes. And here we see what Christ wants us to do. Could the disciples feed 10,000 people by themselves? Absolutely not. Could the disciples just come to Jesus and say, Lord, give me what you got? Absolutely. And this is what the Lord wants us to do when it comes to feeding people and tending people and helping others out. It's not in our own strength. It's in abiding in the Lord and saying, Lord, what is the little you want to give to me today? Take that little and hand it back out. He wanted to use the disciples to disperse his miracle and to disperse the sustenance. We need to plug in and abide in Christ and just hand out what we've received from him. He had the power, he had the ability to have manna rain down from heaven, to have the quails land, to have it rain down, whether it's hummus or falafels or pastelitos. He could have made it rain whatever he wanted. But instead he wanted the disciples to come to him, receive from him, and then hand it out to others. And friend, this is what every good pastor and every good Christian must do. Spend time with the Lord, receive from Him, and then take that out to the hungry and the needy. Verse 20, So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men besides women, and children. The amount that Jesus fed them was to the point where they were filled. 
That word in the Greek is where we get our word glutted from. That they were borderline gluttons from the amount of fish and chips that they ate. This is not just a little bit full, not satisfied, not okay, not wanting to go get dessert afterwards. No, this is like undo your belt buckle full. This is going upstairs and putting on your sweatpants and coming back to the Thanksgiving meal type full. This is how the Lord sustained and fed the multitudes. And then it tells us there were how many Tupperwares left over? Twelve. How many disciples are there? Twelve. How the Lord has enough to fill us and sustain us. And we serve a God that he likes leftovers as well. For all the old school Hispanic men here that don't like leftovers, you could pray, talk with your wife, and read over the scripture, right? William Barclay, he says, God's generous giving and our wise using must go hand in hand. Just because we serve the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills does not mean that we should be wasteful. No church should be wasteful. In our homes, we shouldn't be wasteful just because God has provided. We should be wise. David Guzik, he says, we're given three principles given God's provision. Number one, thank God for what he's given you and use it wisely. Number two, trust in God's unlimited resources. And number three, do not waste what God has given to you. Whatever he's given you, thank God for it and use it wisely. Trust in his unlimited resources and don't waste the blessings that God has given to you. So which meal would you like to partake in? Do you want to be with Herod, the who's who, the power, the prestige, the alcohol, the dinner and the show, the rich and the famous? Or do you want to be out there with the multitudes, 15,000 people, 10,000 people, out in nature with one Lunchable, but yet Jesus is there? Proverbs 15, 16, and 17 tells us, better is a little with the fear of the Lord, than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. That one hurts, right? It's better where a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fatted calf with hatred, right? That we would trust in the Lord. What kind of a home are we setting up? What friends are we bringing into our household and into our lives? May we trust in the Lord and be more dependent, more reliant on him. So hey, worship team, if you guys can come up, and we'll close in song. Hey, let's all stand, and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. And Lord, for whoever here is tired, Lord, whoever here is weary, Lord, or just in an exhausting season, Lord, whoever's here and they're looking at their account, they're looking at how little they have, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust in you, Lord. Lord, for every parent here, every child here, whatever your word showed us this morning, Holy Spirit, whatever you pricked our hearts to see and receive, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to be humble and to receive it, Lord. And God, if any of us are broken, help us, Lord, to just come up front and pray with one of the pastors, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your word, how it can reveal to us the thoughts and the intents of our very heart. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd fill us to overflowing. 
that we would not just be hearers of your word or just be entertained by your word, but Lord, help us to be doers of your word. So Lord, we love you. We thank you so much, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.